You know, Jesus said he would build his church. It's his church. He said he'd build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we are part of that eternal glorious church. Well, hey, church family, uh, once again, I want to say a big thank you to all of you that were able to show up and volunteer, walk, run, serve in some capacity for the uh, R2R event, uh, our seventh annual race. Uh, uh, my wife is the founder of this. This is in her heart. It's just amazing to see how our church, our community, our city has come together to pull off something. Hundreds of people showed up. It was a great success for a tremendous cause. So once again, thank you. We had volunteers that showed up early in the morning and worked all day and helped. Thank you, guys. There was a dear old 74-year-old woman from Fort Collins that was passing through town and heard about the race and signed up for the race. And she's out there running the, I don't know, was it 10K or the 5K? The 5K. And at times she would run and times she would walk, but she didn't give up. And uh, just what a blessing. It was, it was just a tremendous, tremendous day. So thanks again. And our staff really pulls the weight. And uh, we want, I want to say thank you to our staff. And we had some of, our, some of our staff actually spent the night at McKenzie Park. Go figure. And they said, you would not believe what goes on at McKenzie Park around 2, 3 o'clock. And I said, I don't want to know. <laughs> uh, I plan to never be there around that time of, uh, of the morning. So anyway, it was great. Uh, we do have shirts, uh, a few shirts left. And uh, we're giving a special today, two for $6 or four for $12. There you have it. And uh, we want you to be a walking billboard for this incredible cause. So uh, go buy them. I think the sizes are limited, but we have some shirts still available. All right, we're in Acts 14. And uh, we've entitled this chapter, A Scar Means You Survive. Scars are not only physical, they are internal. And a scar is better than a tattoo, as it has been said. And in this chapter, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul gets his first scar. Uh, he's stoned in this, uh, in this chapter, and he gets his first scar. And so uh, uh, we've been talking about this for the last several weeks, and we've got this weekend and next weekend, and we'll wrap up the 14th chapter here of the book of Acts. And uh, you're going to find out that sometimes what you might feel like could be a bad day really may not be a bad day. I mean, we all have some what we call bad days, right? There are some days in life that you would just like to check out of uh, this thing called life for that particular day anyway. So I came across a list of how you can know if you truly are having a bad day. Well, first of all, if you have to hitchhike to the bank to make your car payment, that's probably a sign you're having a bad day. If your secretary tells you that the FBI is on line one, the DA is on line two, and CBS News is on line three, you're pretty much having a really bad day. If your wife starts charging you rent, get a clue. If a black cat crosses your path and drops dead, you're having a bad day. Uh, if a copy of your birth certificate shows up in the mail marked null and void, you can interpret that one. If you're so bored that you play hide and seek alone, or if your wife takes the dog on vacation and leaves you at the kennels, you're having a bad day. If your horn gets stuck on the freeway behind a motor motorcycle gang of the Hells Angels, you can pretty much sure you're gonna have a bad day. If the bird singing outside your window this morning was a vulture, guess what? You're having a bad day. And finally, if you wake up and discover that your waterbed broke, only then to realize, I don't have a waterbed, you're going to have a really bad day. But when you're feeling like you're having a bad day, you simply need to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
In there, the Apostle Paul gives his own personal laundry list of the things that he suffered for Christ. The things that, the price that he paid for being a, a, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said five times he was whipped, 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was stoned in this chapter that we're studying. Three times shipwrecked, all for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did all this for the sake of Christ. Maybe the difference between a good day and a bad day is really our attitude and our outlook. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul, he considered these beatings and these stonings that left scars marks of his faithful service to Christ. He said in Galatians 6, 17, I bear in my body the marks, the scars of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he actually wore them with a badge of honor. He never was bewildered by the things he suffered because he knew that Jesus forewarned his followers. He said, if they hated me, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Don't think it's going to happen any differently for you. He warned them that in Matthew chapter 5, in, in Matthew chapter 10, in John chapter 15, that you're going to suffer for my name's sake and you should rejoice when you do. So Paul never filed a grievance with the human resource department in heaven. Amen. He never called the EOC and said, I want to complain about unfair work conditions. No, the Apostle Paul wore his suffering really like a badge of honor because he did it for Christ. And he said this, writing to the Corinthians, he said, I consider these light afflictions. Really, Paul? Being whipped five times, 39 lashes, being beaten three times with rods, being shipwrecked three occasions, being stoned once and left for dead. You call these light afflictions? Yes, in comparison to the exceeding weight of glory that is before me. So it's all about, really, perspective. Now, last week, we ended our message uh, in Acts 14.10, where a man born crippled was miraculously healed. And we did something special last week, and at the end of all of our services, and we had a powerful response, and thank you for those of you that have shared testimonies with us so far. But we had an anointing service, and we simply took God at his word, and we anointed people with oil and prayed the prayer of faith over them for those that wanted special prayer. And we had literally like 90% of the people that came forward in all of our services, and it was so powerful. And it was all because of what happened here in Acts 14, particularly in verses 8, 9, and 10 that we studied last weekend. Okay, so the miracle happens, and we're going to pick up now where we left off. This is now verse 11 of Acts chapter 14. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, God healed this man miraculously through the apostle Paul. They shouted in their own local dialect, these men are gods in human form. And the people, the pagan people, decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes since he was the chief speaker. Now, the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town, so the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates, and they were prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. And why were they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles? Because they thought, hey, this is a miracle. We can't explain it. We have been steeped in spiritual darkness for generations. All we've learned is paganism from the time we were born to the time we become adults. Everything in our society reinforces these, this spiritual darkness and these pagan beliefs. So if a guy is healed and it's an undeniable miracle, these men... These men can't be who they say they are. They can't be servants of Christ preaching Jesus who came, bled, died, was buried, and rose again, and has given them, by the power of his Holy Spirit, the ability to bring healing about in this man. They can't believe that. It's easier for them to believe 
These are gods among us in human forms. Let's have a block party. Bring out the bulls. Let's have a barbecue. And bring out the flowers and let's worship these guys. These people were steeped in their heathen mythology. They thought Barnabas was Zeus, was one of the chief gods of the, uh, of the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, why, why, why did Barnabas get to be the top god? Well, he's probably taller and younger and maybe better looking than Paul. So they said, he's got to be Zeus. But they gave Paul the title Hermes because Hermes in the pagan world of mythology was the god of logos. He was the heralder of the gods. He was the voice of the gods. And because he was the chief preacher, they called him Hermes. Now imagine two Hebrew guys, two Jewish guys, and you have to understand Jewish, Jewish people loathe, they abhor, they hate any form of idolatry. I mean, because God does. And God's first, you know, first two or three holy commands of God is, you shall worship no other God than me, you shall make no graven image, and you shall not take my name in vain. So this was drilled in the Hebrews, and they just abhorred any sign of idolatry. Any sign of idolatry. And so when these townspeople, Lystra, Lystra and Derby, was a region of the world that did not have a synagogue at that time. There was, see, churches, or like Old Testament synagogues, or like a, like a New Testament church, they were beacons of light in the midst of a world awash in spiritual darkness. And so thank God for these synagogues because they would preach the truth of the Holy Scriptures for those that would listen. And at least it was a way to combat the acceleration of spiritual darkness in that region of the world. See, the devil hates churches because churches are beacons of light and hope in the midst of a world where darkness is spreading. And so this region of the world had no synagogue. There was no speaking of the truth of God's holy word. So they were just like completely in spiritual darkness. And you couldn't expect anything else from them. So the only thing they knew were these pagan gods. And so when Paul and Barnabas found out that these guys were going to worship them, they were like, couldn't, they were beside themselves. Look at verse 14. It says, but when Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they literally tore their clothing in utter dismay, and they ran out among the people shouting. And what were they shouting? They're saying, verse 15, if we can jump to verse 15, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings, just like you. Now, were they getting it? No. Did they understand that? No. We've come to bring the good news, the gospel, that means the good news, the gospel, that you should turn from these worthless things. That was a bad line there. Let me, okay. <laughs> Let's do it this way. That you should turn from these what? Worthless things. Now, if I were there that day and I was one of, if I were one of these pagans, I'd be like, who does he think he is to call my religion or my philosophy worthless. I'm offended by that. How I many know Paul didn't pull any punches? He's saying like, whoa, time out, guys. Stop this. We're not gods. We're just like you. Why are you? We have come to preach the truth to you that you might turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God. Let's go to verse 16, if we can. In the past... God permitted all these nations to go their own ways. Now, Paul is trying to use rational, logical reasoning 
to stop these individuals from doing what they were about to do, worship Paul and Barnabas. He said, look, time out. There was a time that God used to wink or turn away from our behavior. There was a time that God permitted the nations of the world to go their own way. And he basically looked the other way. But now he commands every man everywhere to repent, it says in the book of Acts. Think about Genesis. In chapter, you know, 1, 2, God creates everything. He creates man, creates woman, and performs the first wedding ceremony. And then man, man and woman fall in the sin. They're, they're banished from the garden. And God allowed the earth to be populated through Adam and Eve. They were the first human beings. And uh, the world became populated. By chapter 6 of Genesis, what happens? It says that the heart of God was grieved, that God was sorrowful that he had made man in his image because man's intent was to do evil. He became inventive in how he could do evil 24-7. And God said, I'm going to destroy this earth and start all over. <clears throat> so one man <clears throat> in Genesis 6 found grace and favor in the eyes of God, Noah. So God took Noah, called Noah, Noah built an ark. For 120 years, Noah built an ark, and he preached righteousness, but nobody listened. The time the flood came, only Noah and his family, eight souls in total, the Bible says, entered the ark along with the seven, seven pairs of every clean animal and two pairs of every unclean animal. And it rained 40 days, 40 nights. They were on the ark for, 100, for, 100, for an entire year. And they finally land in the new world, right? This is Genesis 7, 8, and 9. They land in the new world. Chapter 10 talks about how now out of Noah's sons and daughters, children were born and children were born and, and families were and the earth was populated again. By chapter 11 of Genesis, we're back into idolatry <laughs> because the world's coming together and this is the birth of humanism. They're going to build a tower unto themselves to make their name great called the Tower of Babel, right? And then God comes down and he confounds the languages. Chapter 12, God says, I'm going I'm to now focus on a man. He focuses on a man named Abram. He calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, and here's what the Bible says. Abram's father, Terah, was an idol worshiper and an idol maker. So by chapter 12, the world is filled with idolatry once again. And so God begins to focus on a man. He focuses on, on, on his 12 sons, became 12 tribes. He focuses on a nation, and from that nation came the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God used to permit nations to do their own thing, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. And our tendency is to gravitate towards these worthless things. I wonder how many worthless things in America are getting our time and attention and devotion. I wonder how many worthless things are distracting us from that which is truly valuable and worthy of our attention and praise. So look at verse 17 now. Paul says, but he never left those nations who went their own way. He never left them without evidence of himself. So say you're an agnostic. Say you're an atheist. What's the evidence that God exists? Paul says to these pagans 2,000 years ago, he said, God's evidence of himself is his goodness. God's goodness and how God is good and how God allows, for instance, Paul said, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. He's saying, look, God is good. And the Bible says in, in Romans 2, it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance more than the fear of God or the wrath of God. It's God's goodness. That God allows it to rain on the just and the unjust. God's a good God. His nature is one of goodness. And even though nations steeped into idolatry time and time again, God was still letting the rains fall and the crops to be grow so that their hearts 
could be joyful. Now, if you were there that day and you were a current pagan and you were listening to this man who just miraculously healed another man, would you not give this man a little credit? Maybe he knows what he's talking about. Maybe what he's saying is kind of beginning to make, how many would think, you know what, it's kind of making sense what he's saying. Maybe, just maybe, do you think he might be winning you over to his argument? I would hope I would say, yeah, I would want to be one of those, right? But no, that's not what happened. Look at verses 18 now. But even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. But then everything turns on a dime. Then, right in the middle of all this, some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium, which was about 100 miles away. 100 miles away. All of a sudden, these Jews show up and won the crowds. Say those next three words with me. To their side. Say those three words again. To their side. So Paul, there's this miracle, guys healed. They want to worship him. He's like, oh, time out. Hey, you're, you're Zeus, you're Hermes. They rip their clothes. They're like, don't kill those poor bulls. I mean, if you're going to kill a bull, kill it for a good reason, to have a good family gathering and have some good beef. Amen. Sorry, vegetarians. But anyway, don't kill these bulls because of us. We're not gods, right? Have mercy on these poor bulls. Put the flowers back in the flower shop. You all need to stop this worthless worship of these false gods. When are you going to get a clue? Well, they didn't listen to them. They still wanted to worship them. And then all of a sudden these Jews show up from Antioch and Iconium. And they turn the crowd against Paul and Barnabas. And they win the crowd to their side. Now I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that here in a moment. They won them to their side. Now, who would travel 100 miles to oppose the gospel? Apparently these individuals were so passionate, so passionate about what they believed in, albeit wrong as it was, to oppose the gospel. They were willing to pay their own way, pay their expenses, to, to, to get to where Paul and Barnabas were so that they could interfere with and stop the preaching of the gospel. You know, sometimes those who oppose the gospel are more committed to their cause than those who supposedly are for the gospel shouldn't be that way how committed are you well i know those of you that were able to you're committed you showed up yesterday and some of you ran a 5k some of you walked a 5k some of you ran some people ran a 10k who in their right mind would run you know for like 45 minutes or however long it takes some of those speedsters to run to run a 10k but you were willing to show up and volunteer. Why? Because you believe in something. You believe in something so much to such an extent, you're willing to sleep all night there or show up at 4.30 or serve or sign up or volunteer. Why? Because you believe in it. How many know that we should believe in the gospel more and be willing to invest our time, talent, and treasure in the advancement of the gospel more than those who oppose the gospel in our world and in our country today? We should be more committed to our cause, the cause of Christ, than those who oppose the cause of Christ are to it. Now listen, I'm going to say something that might offend some of you, and I don't want to apologize in advance. You see, I believe every sin that the Bible identifies as sin, the Bible is 100% against that sin. And so as Christians, we need to be 100% against those sins. We may still be struggling with those sins. God's grace is sufficient. 
God's, the power of the Holy Spirit is there to help make us whole and help us live a more holy life. But we have to call things sin for what it is. It's sin. We have to call the worthless things in our life <laughs> the worthless things in our life. Sometimes those who are living sinful lives are more committed than those to their cause than we are to the cause of righteousness. You know, I've had friends that have been involved in a gay lifestyle. I've had people in our, in our former church that, that worked in our ministry, in our singles ministry, that were coming out of the gay lifestyle. And I know people that are struggling with, with, the, with the sin of homosexuality, it, it's, it's the same as those that are struggling with the sin of sex outside of marriage. You know, all sex outside of a monogamous married relationship between one man and one woman, the Bible condemns as sinful. It's sinful behavior. It'll never, no matter what priests or pastors or churches or denominations or politicians or society or, or the entertainment industry or culture, no matter what culture says, it has always been sin. It'll always be sin. But think about this for a moment. A lot of really nice people, hardworking people, dedicated people are confused about their sexual identity and they're involved in the gay lifestyle. Some of you have family members and friends that are involved in it. And maybe you're here today, maybe you're struggling with that sin. And, uh, you know, God loves you. We love you. No matter what sin you're struggling with, there is a way out. But we have to first admit that we've sinned and fallen short of God's standards, of God's glory. And then, only then, can help from God begin to come into our life. But, you know... People that are involved in the gay movement, if Christians were half as committed as many that are involved in the gay movement today and in the advancement of the gay agenda around the world, if Christians were half as committed as many of those gay people are to their cause, we would have evangelized the world ten times over. I say we should be the most devoted, committed men and women on planet Earth because we stand with Christ for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These individuals from Antioch and Iconium were willing to travel 100 miles to oppose the, the message of Christ. How far are you and I willing to travel to preach the message of Jesus Christ? So here's what happened. Once again, uh, verses 18 and 19, but when these words, that, but even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could not scarcely restrained the people from sacrificing to them. Then some of the Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. And look at the last part of this verse. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of town, thinking he was dead. Wait a minute. Didn't this begin with them wanting to sacrifice bulls and worship and didn't they call Paul Hermes and that they thought he was a god in human form? Yes. But because of these Jews that came from Antioch, within a matter of moments, the crowd changed sides against Paul and Barnabas, and they stoned Paul, and then they dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. Now, it didn't say that they, that they stoned Barnabas or the other members of his ministry team. Why Paul? Because the one thing the devil wants to shut up are those who stand for and preach the uncompromising truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that include the holy teachings of Jesus and the holy commands of a holy God. The world will come against you to stop that dead in his tracks. So they dragged Paul out of town and they, they left him for dead. But you know the amazing thing is Paul wasn't dead. And the Bible says that the Apostle Paul, he got back up, dusted himself off, and he went back into town 
and he went back to Derby. Astounding. Astounding. Imagine Barnabas and the, the, the ministry team members, they're like, is he dead? And maybe he did die. Maybe God miraculously raised him from the dead. We don't know. But Paul was a human being, flesh and bone, and these, those people back then were good stoners, you know what I mean? Kind of means different now today in a world that wants to legalize marijuana. But these, were, these people knew how, to, they knew how to stone you in a way that inflicted the most damage and pain and then finally did you in. These were professional stoners. And they thought for sure he was, maybe he was dead. Maybe God raised him, maybe, but maybe he wasn't dead. But the other believers were like, this is the most important man. Outside of Jesus Christ, the, most, the best Christian that's ever lived is the Apostle Paul. Without him, we wouldn't be here today. Without him preaching to the Gentiles, without him writing two-thirds of the New Testament, where would the world be without this man? And there he's left dead. But God said, I'm not finished with you yet. Your time is not yet. Your work is not completed yet. And he got back up, went back into town, and then went to the next town that God had called him to. I want to leave you with three important thoughts in closing. Three very important thoughts concerning what we're studying. First of all, three takeaways. Number one, you're going to have to choose sides. You see, these, these, these Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they came and they, they caused the crowd to choose their side. In Luke 12, 51, Jesus said, do you think that I've, I came to bring peace to the earth? No, no, indeed, no. I came to make people choose sides. You see, you're going to have to choose a side. There is no such thing as indecision. Indecision is a decision against something. If you've not made a choice to be on God's side, to be on the winning team, to choose life, to choose heaven, you've already made a choice, my friend. There is no middle ground. There is no in-between. And the gospel makes people choose sides. In 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10, there's this guy. Who, he's the son of Jehoshaphat, and his name's Jehu. And he becomes a king for a short period of time. And his assignment is to wipe out the, 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 the dynasty of King Ahab. King Ahab was one of the wickedest kings over Israel. Just a vile, evil person. His wife, Jezebel, just a vile, evil person. These two people will be in the compartment of hell with Hitler. That's how bad these two people were. So God raises up this guy, Jehu. And his mission is to wipe out the dynasty of Ahab. So first on the agenda, make sure all 70 sons of Ahab are beheaded. And the Bible gives detail. Sorry if you're a little kid. You should be in kid's place right now. Mom and dads, this is an adult service. Amen. So they, they cut off their heads, and they send him to Jehu. Then he rides to Jezreel, where Jezebel is. And Jezebel hears that Jehu is the new anointed king, because the prophet Elisha anointed him through another prophet to be the king. And she starts putting her makeup on. She thinks she's going to be able to seduce this guy. This guy has blood in his eyes. He's got the wrath of God all over him. He's got the fire of God burning in him. He just knocked off 70 kids of Ahab, you know, because he's going to wipe out the dynasty of, of King Ahab. And she's up there trying to flirt with him. And he said this, who's on my side? This is a new king. Who's on my side? And three eunuchs, how would you like to be a eunuch in the Old Testament, guys? That would be a horrible job. Anyway, three eunuchs are up there, and they said, we are. And they said, throw her over the balcony. And they said, our pleasure, just like they tell you at Chick Chick-fil-A. Our, our pleasure. <laughs> and they throw her over, man, splat, like blood everywhere. And Jehu goes and eats lunch, and he says, you know what? That woman was a queen. We need to go ahead and bury her. So they go back to find her. She's gone. The dogs ate her. The Bible gives that detail. 
All that's left are her hands and her feet because that was, that's what was prophesied would happen to this evil, wicked woman. But the point of the story is this. I want to get you ready for lunch. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> the point of the story is this. Jehu, wrote, Jehu, the king, rode into town and said, who's on my side? Soon and very soon, King Jesus is coming back, and he wants to know, who's on my side? I hope you've chosen the winning team. I hope you're on the right side. Let me give you a brief history lesson. Bear with me. There have been times in the nation of the life and the history of our nation that Americans have to choose sides. You can't be in the middle. You got to choose sides. Take, for example, during the Revolutionary War. Did you know there were tens of thousands of Americans that were against our independence? They were called loyalists. They were loyal to the crown of England. And they were called Tories. And they opposed our fight for independence. The other Americans that were for independence, they were called patriots. And they rose up under the leadership of George Washington, and we defeated those Englishmen. Amen. And we won our freedom and our independence. And if we didn't have, if we would have lost that war, we would all have an English accent right now, which I can't mimic, by the way. We would all speak like Englishmen, and we wouldn't have our freedom. You had to choose sides. As a pastor during the Revolutionary War, you had to choose sides. Either you were for independence or you were against it. You couldn't be in the middle. And some pastors were for. Matter of fact, it's a matter of record of history, and their sermons you can download today and read them. There were preachers during the Revolutionary War that preached a message on Sunday with their clerical robe. And by the end of the message, they took off their clerical robe. Underneath, they had the Revolutionary Army uniform on. They put down their Bible and grabbed their musket, and they said, let's go fight for our freedom. That's the kind of pastor that I'd want to be in his kind of a church. Amen, right? You have to choose sides. And there were winners and there were losers. The losers had to assimilate into the winning side. And it was actually better off for the world because of that moment. Another moment in history where Americans had to choose sides. During the Civil War, half of our nation believed slavery was evil. Half of our nation believed it was necessary because of the love of money and the, and the South was an agrarian economy based on crops and, and cotton and, and needed labor, cheap labor, in order for that to happen. And so the North was industrial manufacturing. That was beginning to boom. And so we had a battle. You had to choose sides. Either you were on the right side of history, you were against slavery because it's evil, clearly condemned in Scripture, or you were for that evil of slavery. And we fought a battle. And people had to choose sides. And people lost their lives. And our nation could have been destroyed utterly in that moment. But God sovereignly intervened. And after the death of 620,000 men fighting for what they believed in, there was a winner and there was a loser. And the losers had to assimilate on the winning side. And aren't you thankful that the good guys won and slavery ended in America? <laughs> choose your side. We're in, a new We're in a new civil war. Some of the greatest historians and economists have written on this. We're in a new, America right now. We're in a new civil war, a turning point. And we'll either go deeper into darkness or deeper into more moral, spiritual realities. You're going to have to choose sides. You can't play the middle. There was a guy, they say, during the civil war, 
He didn't know if he should be with the blue coats or the gray coats. He didn't know if they should be with the north or the south. So he wore, he wore a uniform. It was a blue coat and gray pants. They found him shot dead, shot in the chest and in the back. You got to choose sides. You can't be both ways. You got to choose sides. In this new cultural war that we're in, you're going to have to choose sides. You're either going to be on the side of the sanctity of life, that all life is precious from the womb to the grave. Either you're for life or you're against life. There is no middle ground. There is no indecision, my friend. You have to choose sides. And when it comes to the sacredness of marriage, either you believe in the definition that God gave us or you don't. And you're going to have to choose sides. And the sad thing is many, many Christians are choosing the wrong side when it comes to these moral, social, and cultural issues. I would hope that if I were a pastor during the Revolutionary War, which I couldn't have been because uh, I'm of Italian descent and my paternal ancestors were still in Italy at that time. I don't know if they would have let an Italian guy pastor in America at that time. But I would have hoped that I would have been on the right side of the Revolutionary War for our independence. Uh, I wasn't a pastor during the Civil War, but I would hope to God that if I were pastoring in New Mexico or in Texas or wherever during the Civil War, which I probably wouldn't have been allowed to pastor because I'm of Italian descent and my family members were still in Italy at that time. But I would hope that I would have been on the right side and I hope that I would have stood in the pulpit and said, slavery is a sin. I'm not living during the Revolutionary War, I'm not living during the Civil War, but I am living down during this current cultural war. And I hope that I am a courageous enough pastor to stand before a congregation and say, you know what? Life is precious and it begins in the womb and we must defend life because life is a gift from heaven. And whether it's popular or not, and I don't say this with any malice or hatred in my heart to those that are struggling with the sin of homosexuality or any sin, but marriage has always been and always will be between one man and one woman. There is no such thing as gay marriage. There's only marriage as God created it for us. You're going to have to choose sides. Number two, you're going to have to be brave. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, it says, watch and stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. It takes a lot of bravery to take what life throws at you and keep on going. It takes a lot of bravery for you to be a, a single parent struggling trying to raise that kid all right maybe you made a mistake maybe you didn't make a mistake maybe the person that you married and thought was going to be a great parent walked out on you but now you're a single parent and 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 i and we give we, we say we love you we support you it takes courage to be that single parent in this day and age it takes courage to fall down and get back up you know the amazing thing about babies babies exhibit such bravery and courage that little guy or little girl stands up for the first time and is going to take their first step. They know intuitively this ain't going to work. And they take it the, and they fall. But it takes courage to get back up and try again. And then they fall again. Because something within them says, I'm willing to face the fear of failing so I can learn to walk. What a lesson that we should learn for the rest of our life. That sometimes we have to face the fear of failure so that we can learn to walk. It takes courage. To be physically disabled, some scars and some wounds are not just physical, they're internal. And to face and traverse your way through a world that at times is not very accommodating to those that have a 
disability. It takes courage. It takes bravery to serve in our military or be a first responder. It takes bravery and courage to begin a family. So many singles are delaying marriage for fear of divorce or fear of what's happening in the world. Do I even want to bring children into this world? Yes, you do. It's, it's God. It's the Genesis mandate for you to get married. Every young man in here, if you're out of high school, finish school. If you're in college, finish school. Get a good job. And the very next thing I command you to do in Jesus' name, find a wife and get married and have babies. Amen. That's, that's the Genesis mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, if you don't have a job, find a job before you find a wife because women are expensive. Let me just tell you that in advance. It's going to take bravery to face what life throws at you as a businessman, starting a business or struggling through a business. It's going to take courage. It's going to take bravery. I like what O.A. Batista once said, the scars you acquire by exercising courage will never make you feel inferior. So you're going to have to choose sides. You're going to have to be brave. You're going to have to have courage in facing what happens in this world. And look at verse 20 of Acts 14. It says, but as the believers gathered around him, he got up, Paul got up, went back into the town, the very town that stoned him, and they dragged him out of town. And the next day he left with Barnabas for his next assignment, which was Derby. My final point is this. If you're not dead, you're not done. You see, that town thought Paul was dead. They left him for dead. But he wasn't dead, which means he wasn't done. And I'm here to tell you today, if you're not dead, you're not done. Get back up, dust yourself off, and go to that next place, that next assignment that God has for you. Do me a favor, indulge me for a moment. Place your hand on your heart. Do you feel that heart beating inside of you? I didn't, so call 911. <laughs> I'm like, I can't feel my heart. Okay, so I felt my pulse. I'm like, okay. So whether you can feel your heart or not, your heart's beating inside. You know what that says? You have a purpose. You have a reason. You were placed on this planet to get a job done, to do something. God's given you an assignment. Whether you fully realize it or recognize it or not, you have an assignment. And the fact that your heart is beating, it means... You're not finished yet. That dear woman that ran that 5K, 74 years old from Fort Collins, Colorado, didn't know a single soul, but saw the advertisement for R2R, showed up, had her running shoes and her running outfit with her, and she's out there running, walking, running. You say, well, did you run, Pastor Carl? No, I had to be, you know, with the security detail, and I had to be in a four-wheeler. I had to drive around and just encourage everybody and shake hands and pray for people. She convicted me, though. She's out there running, running, 74, running. And she made it all the way and crossed that finish line. May her story be your story. I don't care how young you are, how old you are, how hurt you may be. Keep running, keep running, keep running until you cross that finish line. Like Paul said, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I finished my race. His race wasn't over. It was just beginning. So even though they may have killed him, God said, get up, boy. I'll raise you up from the dead. I'll heal those wounds. I'll leave the scars because there'll be a testimony of my power at work inside of your life. If you're not dead, you're not done. So get busy and finish your race. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you and we say, Lord, help us to choose sides and be on the right team, the winning team. The side of Scripture, the side of the gospel, the side of Christ and your holy commands and the holy teachings of Scripture. 
and help us to be brave that no matter what life throws at us, it might knock us down, but if we're not dead, we're not done. Help us to get up and go into that next town, to that next place that you have for us, Lord. I thank you in the name of Jesus. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you need to rededicate your life to Christ, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you're willing and ready to turn over the reins of your life to Christ, allow him to be Lord, boss of your life, if you're serious about serving Christ with all your heart, then I want you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. I want you to say it with your own mouth and mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise together?